Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Patrick Batuello. He's the founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs, the nation's preeminent anti-horse racing organization. Patrick and Horse Racing Wrongs have been featured in, among many other publications, Forbes, USA Today, The Guardian, and Boston Herald, and Deadspin. Patrick has appeared on HBO's Real Sports and multiple CNN and ESPN segments. In addition, Patrick has testified before the New York State Senate and has had op-eds in the Washington Post, MSNBC, the Baltimore Sun, Katie Kirk Media at Al. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being on the program. I appreciate you having me, Derek. Thank you. So I guess let's just start with um, what is wrong with horse racing? It's great questions. Uh, it's, it's multifaceted. So we've been conditioned in this country to think of horse racing as sport, just another sport, sport of kings. Um, I, growing up in the 70s and 80s, was a big sports fan. And although I didn't follow horse racing year-round, it was sold to me as another sport. So I remember watching Seattle Slough and Affirm going for the Triple Crown, and I was certainly aware of Secretariat. Um, But the problem is that uh, when you strip it down to its core, it is no different from dog racing, which, by the way, is all but dead in America. There are only two dog tracks left in the entire country, both in West Virginia And even more telling, dog racing is prohibited on moral grounds in 42 states. Uh, Horse racing is inherently cruel, and it's inevitably deadly. So we can get into the different different parts that make it cruel, but it starts right from the very beginning. Um, These these poor animals are torn from their their mothers and herds as babies, um, sold into servitude, usually at the tender age of one. Uh, broken, which is an industry term meaning to me to be made pliant and submissive, and from there it just uh, the the abuse and the cruelty just escalates. So, uh, in nature, horses fully mature at the age of six. So their bones are not done growing, their growth plates are not done fusing until that age. Horse racing, on the other hand, thrusts these animals into intensive training at the tender age of eighteen months. And they start racing them generally at two, which on the maturation chart is the rough equivalent of a six-year-old child. So we see time and again on the necropsies, four, three, even two-year-old horses dying with chronic conditions like osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease, sometimes in all four limbs. It's clear, unequivocal evidence of the incessant pounding that these unformed bodies are forced to absorb. Um, So again, you know, I can just go on with the, with the various uh, forms of cruelty, but you can interject at any point and, and ask me to uh, to expand on on any of these answers. Um, well, I, a small personal thing. My my father, who was abusive anyway, so I mean, this this does not reflect well on him. He owned a a, a racehorse, and I'd, I'd almost forgotten about this. I was very I was like five or six or seven, and she got she only raced like a couple times and then got uh, uh some back problems um mm-hmm. do they and she was very young too i hadn't even i haven't really thought about this but she was like 2 years old and developed uh so do they get back problems from that from being pushed that yeah, hard that again, young too yeah again they develop all kinds of lameness related issues so most of the time especially this past year with what happened at Churchill Downs, which we will get into back in the spring and Saratoga over the summer, the deaths get the lion's share of the attention uh, of recent. Um, But there are thousands of these poor horses coming off the track um, with all kinds of impairments. Um, And I have been told by people in the rescue industry, rescue world, that um, they estimate that some 30% of the horses that they rescue directly from the track have to be euthanized because they cannot be given a pain-free life. Um, So that's not an unusual story that you tell of your father. Um, We don't have exact numbers on the the numbers of horses coming off the track injured, Um, but of course we can get into the death numbers Again, it's cruel from start to finish, and perhaps the very worst of it for me uh, as an animal rights person is the unremitting intensive confinement. So 
These horses are kept locked in tiny 12 by 12 stalls for over 23 hours a day. Locked alone, that is. These are naturally social herd animals being kept boxed in in a 12 by 12 stall for 23 hours a day. So when I talk about this and I say it's abusive and cruel, uh, the industry would come back and say, well, you're an animal rights person. Of course, you're going to say that. Um, but I always seek out expert testimony. And we're very much a, a fact-based, evidence-based organization. And so we have uh, two members of our advisory board. Uh, one is a world-renowned animal behaviorist, Dr. Nicholas Dodman. He likens the solitary confinement to what human beings suffer uh, in solitary confinement in prisons. Um, so if you've ever read accounts of what they endure uh, as, as, uh, as a prisoner, he says that's what a horse is, is, is suffering. Um, and, and then we have a, a prominent equine veterinarian here in upstate New York, Dr. Craig Kulikowski, who says that keeping a horse locked up like that is akin to keeping a child locked in a four by four closet for over 23 hours a day. That should really bring it home to your, your listeners. So again, that's the very worst of it as far as I'm concerned. It's that day in and day out confinement and isolation uh, that can go on for literally years. Um, so death is death and that's horrible, of course, but it's that suffering day in and day out. So uh, all their natural instincts and desires are being thwarted uh, by being kept like this. They're not allowed to be a horse. Again, these are social herd animals that um, in nature would um, would spend time with other members, obviously, of their herd and and graze and and uh, and, and run at, at their own leisure. They're not allowed to do any of that. And of course not, because if you think about this, fundamentally, this is a this is a, a commodity, right, a, a, an asset. And the racing people are not going to allow these horses to uh, roam free in an open pasture with other horses because there'd be too much of a, a risk of injury and, and, and would hurt their bottom line. So, um, again, their natural instincts and desires are being thwarted. So we see time and again uh, these stereotypies, kind of like what we, what we used to see with the Ringland elephants, the, the bobbing and the swaying, the weaving. Uh, for horses uh, kicking and digging and sometimes even self-mutilation. They do what's called uh, cribbing or windsucking. They'll grab onto something in their stall and just suck in air. It's, it's abnormal stereotypies, abnormal behavior because their natural desires are not being satisfied and met. So again, that's um, uh, that confinement and isolation, that negation of, of their true nature is to me the very worst of it. And as mentioned, they are commodified, so the average racehorse will change hands several times over the course of his so-called career, adding anxiety and stress to an already anxious, stressful existence. This near-constant shuffling among various trainers and vets, grooms, barns across state lines uh, is a primary reason why upward of 90% of active racehorses suffer from chronic ulcers. Um, so we have the, the confinement, the uh, negation, the commodification. And then, of course, there are the tools of the trade. These animals are, are kept uh, 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 under subjugation and controlled uh, for every moment of their lives, really. Again, uh, for want of a better term, they are slaves, right, um, to their, their particular owners and trainers. And um, we see uh, undercover videos where uh, people are caught yelling and screaming at these, these animals and um, um, and then, of course, they use things like nose chains and lip chains to lead them around. Uh, they have what are called tongue ties. They tie down the tongue with a strip of rubber. And the reason that they're tying down the tongue is because they have uh, a big chunk of metal wedged into the soft palate of their mouths. Um, it's called a bit. And anyone who's been around horses is, is familiar with that term. Um but not only does a bit cause pain, physical pain to the um, to the roof of the mouth, um, and just to get get back to the tongue ties, this is why they use these tongue ties because uh, often the horse will try to use his tongue to soothe that uh, uh, pain or assuage that pain um, that the bit is causing, and so they tie the tongue down so as not to interfere with maximum performance during the race. <clears throat> Again, another just another form of cruelty. But beyond that, and this is something that I didn't know 
until just recently. So last summer, we were protesting out in front of Saratoga Racecourse here in upstate New York. And there was a professional photographer taking uh, shots of us and, and our protest. And she was friendly to our cause. And she told us that she was going to be going in inside the track and probably taking some pictures of, of the patrons. And my partner and our executive director, Nicole, asked her to take pictures of the horses' heads and all the paraphernalia that's on their heads. And she did. And she took these uh, extremely um, powerful images of these animals with all this junk on them. And of course, I look at it and I see cruelty and abuse. Right. But who am I? So we hand it off to our executive um, our advisory board. And Dr. Dodman, who I referenced earlier, uh, he told me it's a little out of his wheelhouse. So he he reached out to a colleague of his from Tufts, retired professor who specialized in equine ear, nose and throat can't get any more expert than that. Uh, I reached out and asked him if he would just write a short statement on what he sees. And he was reluctant at first because he's not an animal rights person and he didn't want to be um, um, perhaps mixed in with that kind of messaging. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Cook, all I'm looking for is your, your expert opinion on what you are seeing and what these animals are experiencing with all that stuff um, on their head. He finally agreed. And he wrote this statement that uh, was absolutely devastating, Derek. It's on our website. It's um, If you just type in a search for the cruelty of bits, it'll come up. So he explained, and again, it's something that I did not know, that in nature, horses are obligate nose breathers. So in, in order to, to run, they need to have a tight lip seal. So they're not taking in any air through their mouths. He explained that all those horses racing on that particular day at Saratoga Racecourse, no less, which is probably the preeminent track in the entire country, the, the best of the best, so they tell us, uh, all those horses running that day, would ex because they're not able to have that tight lip seal, would experience feelings of asphyxiation, suffocation, and he likened it to waterboarding. Those were his words, not mine. Imagine that. Um, it's something that no one has ever talked about when we talk about horse racing or horses in general and the way we treat horses. And and here it is. It's uh, an expert explaining that that's what these animals are going to be feeling in those two minutes when they're running at that breakneck speed is, is they're going to feel like they are asphyxiating. Uh, imagine. Wait, Again, so, part of, so ahead, just, I'm sorry. Just to be clear, um, horses breathe through their noses when naturally breathe through their noses when they run exactly so they're obligate nasal nose breathers and so they need a they need to have a tight lip seal and again so in why, nature why, they're able to do that so i'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying I'm, I'm just trying to understand why from the perspective i know they breed horses to have you know big lung capacity they whip them so that they'll run as fast as they can then why wouldn't they try to have them run with their mouths closed so that they can actually breathe better that, that well that seems because stupid right, on their part i should have explained this the purpose of the bit is to control the horse this is another form of control right so the bit is is attached to the the rein and they're able to uh control the horse the jockey's able to control the horse uh not only with the whips which we'll get to but with these uh chunks of metal in the horse's mouth it's to it's uh they say it's to guide the horse but of course it's just another form of, of cruel control um, so because of that bit, they're unable to have that tight lip seal. And, and from the perspective of the racing people, uh, no one from the public has ever known this. So how would, um, how would you know that those, those animals are suffering another layer of, of abuse and cruelty? Um, it's, it's not enough to kill them. It's just going to make them feel pretty horrible, right? They're going to feel like they're asphyxiating and suffocating, as Dr. Cook explained. So uh, that's the reason that they um, that they have those bits in the mouths. It's, it's a form of control. And um, and because of the bits, they're not able to have that that lip seal that they would need to um, um, prevent those feelings of asphyxiation and suffocation. So I want to go a different direction for a, for a second. You said that dog racing is is a more abundant industry. How big an industry is is horse racing? Well, the, currently there are roughly uh, about a hundred tracks in the country. 
Um, but it is contracting as we speak, and it's another part of the story that needs to be told. Um, but just to get back to your your, your question, uh, it's hard to say exactly how much money is involved. It's 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 over a billion dollars, clearly uh, during um, the the industry as a whole. So I call it a multi billion dollar industry. Um, but uh, again, the numbers that they that the industry puts out are um, are their own. So they're, of course, always looking to um, prop up in horse racing to make it look bigger and stronger than it actually is. Uh, but a short, short answer, uh, roughly 100 tracks, but not all of those tracks are running a lot. Um, New York is a big racing state, Kentucky, California, Florida is a big racing state, Louisiana. Uh, but there are other uh, states, um, roughly 30. Four, 35 states have some form of horse racing, but some of them only for uh, a couple of months during the summer, maybe, or some of them only have county fairs. So it's, um, it's, it's not, it's not uniform throughout the country. Um, but dog racing, as I mentioned, is all but, all but gone. And, and it's all but gone for a reason, because the American public has spoken loudly and clearly on this, that they view this as animal cruelty, right? Um, and, and that's the reason it is all but dead. Uh, and horse racing is exactly the same thing as in regard to how the animals are treated. But we are just we have been taught to look at it in a different way. I don't know anyone who's ever thought of dog racing as a sport. And I defy anyone, any of your listeners to name one racing greyhound, one famous racing greyhound. Yet you can reel off a bunch of uh, famous racehorses, including Secretariat, who, by the way, uh, ESPN named the 35th greatest athlete of the 20th century. So again, it's that conditioning. We're just uh, we're, we're just conditioned to think of this as a sport. So our biggest hurdle as activists is to get people to stop and rethink this and just look at it through a fresh, clear, rational lens. And uh, I, and I'm confident that if they do, they'll see this for what it is. And it's again animal cruelty and and animal killing. So this. I, I completely agree with you about perhaps the worst part of it being the confinement. And um, that said, I want to tell a quick story, which is I was brought to do a talk at Eastern Kentucky University back 10, 12 years ago. And the guy who brought me um, was uh, he hated horse racing. And he said the reason he hated horse racing is because he had gone to one once and stood in the front row and the thing that horrified him was um, all the blood coming off of the horses when they finished. And that's not, and he, he said some of it was coming out of their mouths. I don't know. Yeah. And, so that that's pretty rare actually, Derek. Um, horses do bleed. And, and the reason they bleed is because it's um, they're bleeding from their lungs. So you'll see, Occasionally on the charts, and when I refer to the charts, so um, every morning I start my day the same way. I look at the race charts from the day before, all quarter horse and thoroughbred uh, races that are run in America uh, are put into these race charts. They're, uh, for want of a better term, like box scores for horse racing, and it's it's for the better, so it's mostly betting information, odds, and, and, and so forth, um, and payouts. Uh, but in the notes, uh, we will see things that um, uh, some of the, the, the negative outcomes. And occasionally, we will see horses that bleed. It doesn't happen as often as it did when I first started. Um, but it's pulmonary hemorrhage. They're bleeding out from their lungs. And it's, it's, it's manifested uh, through, uh, through the nostrils or sometimes the mouth. And so that's where the blood is coming from. Um, if I had to guess, uh, you know, maybe no more than... Uh, 10, 12 horses a week uh, that I'm seeing in the charts that, that, that return as, as bleeders. Um, but it, Lasix is one of the controversial issues in horse racing. It's a, it's a drug that is given to almost all uh, horses on race day, and it's, it's designed to control the, that pulmonary hemorrhage, hemorrhage pulmonary bleeding. Um, and, and the reason it's, it's controversial is some within the industry say that it's no more than a uh, performance enhancer because it's a diuretic 
Um, they withhold water from the horses uh, for uh, several hours before the race, and they give them this Lasix, and they end up shedding a lot of water weight uh, through urination. And uh, that lighter horses mean faster horses. Uh, there are others within the industry who argue that it's, it's actually humane. It's therapeutic because we are controlling that aforementioned pulmonary hemorrhage with this drug Lasix. Uh, I say it's bad no matter how you look at it, right? If it's the former, then it's cruel because um, you're, you're forcing them to, to shed all this water weight um, and it's a performance enhancer. But if it's the latter, think about this. In what other sport would the fundamental activity, the fundamental physical motion cause uh, these uh, the athlete pain or a certain amount of suffering? Um, they're saying that almost all horses bleed to a certain extent. Um, when it gets to the point where it's coming through the nostrils or the mouth, that's extreme pulmonary hemorrhage. But, but the, 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 the industry is saying that most of these horses will bleed to a certain extent in their lungs. Um, imagine if throwing a baseball or throwing a football or shooting a basketball or kicking a soccer ball, uh, caused the athlete a certain amount of pain, uh, and you had to give them a drug to control that. Again, it's just another... Uh, example of the absurdity of calling horse racing a sport and and along those lines the the whipping the whipping itself so uh, for years they tried to tell us that the whip is is but a harmless guide right and it doesn't hurt the horses uh, the horse has this thick uh, skin and it doesn't hurt them and they're reacting more to the sound of the whip and and all of this is nonsense and of course I uh, sought out um, uh, scientific evidence to to, to show that it was nonsense. And, and there have been studies done, especially in Australia, where um, actually a horse's skin is more sensitive than a human skin. And one of the scientists actually whipped himself with uh, one of these, uh, what are called riding crops or, or whips in horse racing. And he was in extreme discomfort. And he said that it's, it's that much worse for the horse because of the sensitivity of their skin. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, this great soundbite from the uh, former equine medical director for the California Horse Racing Board, Dr. Rick Arthur, who, by the way, is um, a pro horse racer. And he was at a conference a couple of years back, and he said there are those who say that uh, whipping doesn't hurt the horses. He said that's nonsense. Of course it does. That's why we use it. Uh, and, and again, this is a pro racing uh, medical director, uh, veterinarian, saying, yes, of course it hurts the horses. And think about this, Derek. If you saw someone whipping his dog in the park, you would call 911, you and everyone else in the park, right? And that person would be arrested on the spot for animal cruelty, in many states, felony animal cruelty. Yet at the racetrack, in full public view, it's just considered part of the tradition and the way we do things uh, at a horse race. So uh, it's disgusting. It's uh, It's vile. Um, it's just another one of those examples of, 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 of how we're just, we've been, we've been sold this bill of goods for so long about horse racing. Um, and, and we're just asking people to stop and step back and, and think about this. And, and, uh, I, I demographically, and we can get into the finances, but demographically horse racing is in, is in very, very bad shape. They're not drawing the younger generations, um, part of it is, of course, more competition for the gambling dollars. So where horse racing and dog racing had a virtual monopoly on legal gambling outside of Nevada for decades, now there are lotteries and casinos, and, and even more um, important, there are is the mobile sports betting is sweeping the nation. Uh, over 35 states have legalized betting on real sports involving autonomous human beings. So clearly there's competition, but the other factor is that the younger generations, the uh, the 20-somethings, even the 30-somethings, they grew up with all this information at their fingertips. They grew up with different sensibilities, not just about animal um, uh, entertainment, but just animal cruelty in general. And uh, they have no interest in going to a horse race. Um, and, and, and they're looking at this and going, why are we whipping horses so we can gamble when we can go to a casino or now we can bet on our phones on basketball and football? Uh, so clearly, demographically, this industry is in very bad shape, um, but unfortunately, uh, they are heavily, heavily, heavily subsidized. So roughly 75% of the 
of the entire U.S. industry is being propped up by taxpayer subsidies. Uh, in New York, I'll use our, my home state as an example. There are 11 racetracks, seven harness tracks. And just to give your listeners, in case they don't know, harness uh, harness racing is uh, is different. They use a different breed. It's a sta- called the standard bred horse, but they use those carts you know, with with a rider in a cart, kind of like the uh, chariot racing. Um, seven harness tracks in New York, four thoroughbred tracks. If not for the massive subsidization to the tune of $230 million per year, just in New York State, propping up the industry, uh, I, I say that nine of the of the 11 would have closed 15 years ago. Um, so and what, you could make it up. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What forms do those subsidies take? So the way it works is, uh, and, and um, just to go back and how it started, so around the turn of the century, 2003, 2004, the industry was finding it harder and harder to compete with the lottery and with casinos. And this is before mobile sports betting. So you can imagine how much uh, more hand-wringing is going on today. So they went to the legislatures, uh, not just in New York, but in state after state. And they said, look, if you don't help us here, if you don't, if you don't uh, give us an opportunity to compete with these uh, other forms of gambling, you are going to be responsible for putting so many thousands of people out of work because there's, according to them, thousands of jobs tied to the racing industry. They pulled these numbers out of thin air. Uh, they have their own studies. They commission their own studies. They come up with these jobs numbers. Well, back then, politicians being politicians didn't want to be on the wrong side of that issue, jobs. So they voted these subsidies in and horse racing has been around forever. So yeah, of course we'll give you we'll give you this money. So the way it works, and generally it does vary, uh, you know, a bit from state to state. But here in New York, they allowed the tracks to open up what are called racinos. It's a combination racetrack casino, and they would put these uh, slots parlors in. They call them video lottery term- terminals in New York, but they're glorified slot machines. And instead of the um, uh, all of the net win from those slot machines after the operators have been paid and after, of course, the, the winners of have been paid. Instead of that, going back to the state for education primarily, because that's what all state-sanctioned gambling is supposed to uh, support is education, a portion of it was diverted, is diverted, to prop up the racing industry. So again, in New York, that amounts to roughly $230 million per year. That's a billion dollars every four years that we are cheating school children out of. So when we go into lobby on behalf of uh, bills that we have um, helped introduce here in New York that would take those subsidies away, we say, look, you can take the cruelty and the killing out of it completely, and it's a no-brainer. We're cheating school children, literally cheating school children out of a billion dollars every four years to prop up this archaic industry. And again, 75% of the industry is being propped up. And when whenever we're told that horse racing is too big, we're never going to take it down. Um, we explain to them that it's happening as we speak. It's contracting as we speak. So I have a page on the website, tracks that have shuttered just since the year 2000. We're up to 43 tracks. And in that time, only two new tracks have opened and only because they are being subsidized. Obviously, they don't open new tracks without subsidization. Uh, so it's already contracting. Uh, in recent years, high-profile tracks in Boston, Suffolk Downs, in Chicago, Arlington Park, in uh, the Bay Area, in California, Golden Gate Fields will be closing at the end of this year. Well, it looks like it's going to be extended for six months into the next year, but it's going to close. Um, there's talk about Turf Paradise and Phoenix closing. These are major, major venues closing. Um, so clearly the writing is on the wall. That said, <clears throat> there is... Obvious, obvious urgency, right? Because horses are suffering and dying now. They can't afford to wait for this to just kind of play out. <clears throat> so just to get to the killing component. So when we first started back in 2013, uh, the one of the very first things I did was started filing FOIA requests with racing commissions around the country asking for their dead horses. No one had ever done this before. No one knew how many horses were dying at American tracks until we started compiling this information. So since 2014, which is our first annual list, we have documented with names, dates, locations, and details 
almost 10,000 kills. We'll be at 10,000 by the end of this year on our website, almost 10,000 kills. Uh, again, never been done before. We estimate, however, that over 2,000 horses are dying at U.S. tracks every year. That's six dead horses every single day. They die of um, a variety of reasons. Most people think of uh, broken legs. And, and while that does form the, uh, a majority of the deaths, uh, they also die of what are called sudden cardiac events. Their hearts just give out. And just to remind, they, these are adolescents at best, two, three, four years old. Again, they don't mature until fully mature until the age of six, just killing over and dying. They die of pulmonary hemorrhage. Like I said, if the, if the bleeding is bad enough in the lungs, they'll literally suffocate on their own blood and, and bleed out internally. Um, they die of broken necks. They die of severed spines. They die of ruptured ligaments. They die of blunt force head trauma from collisions with other horses or the track itself. Um, so again, it's more than just the uh, the broken legs. And by the way, those broken legs, <clears throat> the details, it's all in the details. So if I, if I could ask uh, your listeners to read one page on our website, it would be the section, How They Die. It's a it's a sampling of, um, of various deaths over the course of the, the most recent six months or a year, just to give people an idea. And again, it's all in the details. It's um, So these broken legs are, 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 are quite often uh, open, which means it, it broke through the skin, and comminuted, which means it's, it's in multiple pieces, shattered, um, you know, compound fractures, uh, just gruesome, gruesome injuries. And, and obviously, it's in the industry's best interest to get that injured horse off the track uh, so what they can be euthanized uh, back in the barn, out of sight, out of mind. But but uh, quite often, the injury is so bad that they can't load the horse onto what's called the uh, the van, which is a, an equine ambulance. So they have to euthanize uh, right there. And um, we had multiple, multiple high-profile deaths at Saratoga Racecourses past summer. Uh, again, Saratoga may be the top meet in the entire country, um, and it happened on big race days. Two died on Travers Day, which is uh, the the next tier below the, the Triple Crown races, the Travers. Uh, so full public view, high-profile horses dying on, on a big race day. National TV audience was being covered by Fox Sports. Uh, there was a lot of talk then about what is happening in horse racing, and this is terrible. And and uh, when I, whenever I, I I get media requests, uh, it's the first thing I'll say is stop calling this an anomaly or a spike or a spate or or whatever. This is business as usual. Saratoga, for instance, averages 15 kills every summer, almost guaranteed. Going back to 2009, we have data: 15 deaths every year. They, they had 17 kills this past summer. So again, kind of belies the idea that this is getting safer and it's getting better. <clears throat> Churchill Downs, as I mentioned at the top of the show, back in April and May, Churchill is the home of uh, the Kentucky Derby, had uh, uh, 12 kills in a 30-day period, 12 kills in 30 days. Everybody was covering it, uh, not just the racing press, but mainstream media, New York Times, CNN, uh, Fox News, right across the board. Everyone was covering the deaths and everyone wanted to know what is happening. How can we make this safe? You can't make it safer. Um, what I, it's what I call the inevitability of dead racehorses. A certain level of killing is baked into the system. It starts primarily with the ages of the horse. As I mentioned, these are woefully immature animals. Um, and again, all you have to do is take a look at those necropsies that we put out there showing those animals dying with osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease, sometimes, again, in all four limbs. It's that evidence of that pounding. So that's the primary reason. If, if you were to read just um, uh, just a, a cursory reading of, the, of, of mainstream coverage of horse racing, there's so much talk about drugs in racing. And, and while drugging and doping is one of the wrongs, clearly. Uh, it's not the primary reason that these animals are dying. They do use drugs to uh, control the pain and, and, and mask injury often. 
and and doping is is an entirely separate issue. Doping is illegal medication. Um, I've just reported recently on a, a trainers that have been busted for opioids and cocaine. They use Viagra, um, caffeine, all kinds of of drugs. Um, but the drugging that you hear about often in in horse racing, especially with guys like Bob Baffert, who's a world famous trainer, uh, that's those are therapeutic medications, and they're and they're busted for overages on those therapeutic medications. Um, that's to control the inflammation and the pain and to keep the horse on the track because if he's not racing, he's not earning, right? Uh, but that's not the primary reason that they are dying. <clears throat> In addition, everything that happens at a, at a horse race is completely unnatural. So we often hear that these animals are born to run and they love to run. They love to compete. Yeah, they do. They love to run at their own pace and under their own control, right? Uh, not what happens at a racetrack where they are being asked to run at this breakneck speed with a uh, perched wielding human uh, to be kept um, keeping up with this artificial herd, often in close quarters. Uh, remember, these are flight animals. Uh, there's a certain level of anxiety and panic that happens to these, these horses. I see it all the time in the charts. Uh, they'll say things like, was hard to load, fractious in the gate, unruly. They'll use terms like that. It's because these animals are panicked and, and they're being forced into these metal contraptions. Uh, sometimes it takes three or four guys to get them into the gate, just to get them into the, the starting gate to start the race. Um, so again, everything about the horse race is unnatural. And um, again, the ages of the horse, uh, the commodification factors in to this inevitability uh, because the short the 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 earning window for the current people who own and train these horses is typically short term. They're not looking for the long term well being of these animals. Uh, they're only looking for a few months, maybe a year or two, and then it's passed on to the next person. So that's where the a lot of that drugging will come into place. Keep them out on the track. Keep them earning. <clears throat> so as, again, a certain level uh, is is inevitable. Um, not only that, but the, but the way they're kept back in their stalls, um, they develop things like uh, colic, which is a, a terrifying abdominal uh, condition, uh, laminitis, which is excruciating inflammation in the feet. They sometimes we'll see on the on the necropsy reports, quote, found dead in the morning. These are still active racehorses in between races. And again, most of them still adolescents at best, just dying overnight. Um, and, and often there'll be no definitive cause, uh, relayed in the, in the necropsy. So, uh, it, it, it's awful from start to finish, Derek. I'm sure you've got some follow-up questions, but, yeah. uh, I, I say it's, it's inherently cruel and inevitably deadly. So, um, you just said the word finish and we've talked or you've, you've talked about how these animals are really young and let's say they race for two years. And they don't do very well, so they're not, you know, wanted for their sperm. And uh, what happens to to an unsuccessful racehorse after three years? Excellent question. So, yeah, the there have only been two studies done uh, trying to identify the specific breeds of horses going to slaughter. So we do know how many American horses in total go to slaughter every year. That's a, U, a matter of USDA record. Um, and, and just again, for your listeners, currently there are no active uh, operating slaughterhouses on U.S. soil. The last one's closed in 2007. Slaughter has not been banned in America. It's just been defunded. There's no funding for USDA inspections. So we ship them to Canada and Mexico to be slaughtered. So historically, the numbers have gone down in the past couple of years, but historically, the the, the total uh, um, amount of American horses going to slaughter every year was over 100,000. So how do you determine which one of those or how, how many of those were racehorses? Again, we'll go back to those two studies. One study put the thoroughbred portion, just the thoroughbred portion at 19% and one put it at 16%. So even if you were to give the uh, the industry the benefit of the doubt and say it's more like 10%, 
So 10% of 100,000 is 10,000 thoroughbreds, American thoroughbreds. And, 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 and remember, thoroughbred is synonymous with racehorse. That's what a thoroughbred is. He's a racehorse, right? Um, there's no other reason to breed thoroughbreds other than to race them. So uh, historically, uh, that number was 10,000 or more going to slaughter every year. Again, the numbers have gone down a little bit, but that's nothing that the industry has done. It's more that uh, there's less breeding going on because, again, the industry is contracting and there are more active people out there trying to rescue horses, again, unaffiliated with the horse racing industry. But again, even if we were to give them the benefit of the doubt and say it's it's uh, it's 5,000, we're talking thousands of these erstwhile athletes meeting this horrific brutal, violent, bloody end at the slaughterhouse. Um, without being too graphic, uh, I say it's, it's, it's akin to equine hell, what, what greets them at these uh, Mexican and Canadian slaughterhouses. Uh, they are um, flight animals, again, panicked and, and uh, terrified when they get into these buildings and the smell and, and sights of, of death are, are all around them. Um, so it's it's gruesome. And again, I, I don't have, need to get into detail. You can find it on our website. But <clears throat> all told, we're talking about over 2,000 dying at the track every year, thousands more dying when they are ret retired in quotes. Uh, I say what's happening in the American horse racing industry is carnage. Carnage. There's no other word for it. So I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, this, is, this is off. We're not going... This is off schedule, but um, two things. One is I've seen a little bit of harness racing like videos. And the interesting thing, this goes back to what you said about the industry sort of collapsing, is when they've showed the grandstands, there's like 10 people in the audience. <laughs> Perfect, Derek. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we did a study here uh, in New York. So there are seven harness tracks. We went to each of the seven tracks and took photos on a you know on a typical Friday night, which is supposed to be their their you know their big night, and yeah, you can uh, I think the most any one of those tracks had was was fifty people. Um, so where years ago they used to get thousands on a Friday night, now uh, the attendance is so bad they don't even count and report any longer. It's so embarrassing, and it's free. It's free admission to harness tracks. Uh, because they just need people in the in the stands, um, it's being almost wholly propped up by these subsidies. So the purse money, which is the amount of money given to the 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 winning horses, not just the winning horses, but because of these subsidies, now they pay first through last, which creates an an, an added layer of cruelty. They're racing horses that have no business being on the track, not that any of them do, um, but the the purse money. In harness racing in New York, almost 90% of the purses are being funded by the slot machines. 90%. Not by bets, not by, obviously not by attendance because they don't charge for attendance, but by slot machines. So clearly, it's a dead industry and it's, it's only being kept alive by taxpayer support. So it's something that, uh, we, you know, we're working hard on trying to get, uh, educate. We have to educate legislators because they have no idea. Most of them weren't around 15, 20 years ago when these were voted in, and they don't have any knowledge of this. So it's our job to educate, and we are making progress. It's slow but uh, steady, and, and we feel like if we can get one state to reverse those subsidies, others will follow in, 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 uh, in, in order. And I think that uh, you could see potentially the bulk of the U.S. racing industry collapsing virtually overnight. That's not to say that Churchill Downs or Saratoga or Del Mar out in San Diego are going anywhere anytime soon, but it's contracting, and uh, and and most of these tracks are are just being uh, kept kept uh, alive by by taxpayer support. So I have another harness question, which is, how do they make the horses uh, do that unnatural gait? Is that is that easy or is that also cruel? Yeah, again, it's it's just so all in the way they're being trained, uh, you know, as babies is, um, they, it's just it's just a form of training. It's kind of like the, um, uh, what we used to do with the elephants at, at uh, Ringland Brothers, right? 
they train them to do this. And of course it's cruel because it's not a natural gate for them. Uh, and, and it, I'm glad you brought up harness racing because it, it gets short shrift when we talk about horse racing. No one ever thinks about the poor standard breads. They don't break down as often because of the way they're built. They're, they're, they're more compact, uh, stockier. Um, um, and also, of course, they're not being asked to run at that same rate, that breakneck speed that thoroughbreds and quarter horses are asked to do. That said, the cruelty and the suffering is, is typically longer in harness racing. These animals can go into their teens, um, before they're finally, again, retired in quotes. And for, uh, for many of them, especially here in the Northeast, that retirement, uh, lands them, uh, on an Amish farm, which is another uh, horrible form of, of, of animal abuse and animal cruelty. The Amish are notorious for beating these animals into the ground. And when they're done with them, they end up at those same slaughterhouses as their thoroughbred and quarter horse cousins. So, uh, I try to highlight the standard breads as much as possible on the website because it's, um, it's something that no one, uh, most people just don't think about is are the, the poor standard breads and, and harness racing, but it, it's obviously uh, every bit as cruel as the other forms of racing. So we have four or five minutes left and a couple of things. One is, can you point people to the website and talk about your organization a little bit? And then can you uh, basically say what you would want for people to do about this issue? Sure. So that's excellent. So it's horseracingwrongs.org is the website. Um, I, I feel like it's the best case against horse racing. Uh, if anyone wants to know what's wrong, you asked at the top, what's wrong with horse racing? Just go to horse racing wrongs. In fact, I have a page at the, at, on the homepage. It's called the wrongs and it kind of lists them out, um, uh, in, in order. Uh, as far as our organization, we are a grassroots organization. We're a hearts and minds organization. It's, it's our job to educate the public. Um, and, uh, we do that primarily. Uh, through protests around the country. Uh, we have sponsored protests. I believe we're up to 20 plus states between 25 and 30 tracks. We've, uh, we've sponsored protests. Um, and then of course, when you protest, you're going to get media, uh, most of the time. And, and then you're able to trumpet your message, uh, exponentially, right? Out to a larger, larger audience. So, uh, I think there's no substitute for protest. I, I, I firmly believe in, in protest. Um, I know it's not for everyone. Uh, I know the ones that we run here in Saratoga, uh, we are peaceful and non-confrontational. Um, sometimes you get into the bigger cities and there may be some chanting involved and it's not for everyone, but all you need to do is, is stand there and hold a sign. You don't even have to engage with people. Um, but again, there's, there are powers, there's power in numbers. Uh, and, and I feel like protesting is, is, is the, the most basic, uh, form that you can, uh, most basic mode, um, that you could, you could, uh, pursue. Think about this. Every great social justice movement in our nation's history began in the streets, whether it's civil rights, gender equality rights, sexual orientation. Uh, it always starts in the streets. You have to let the public know there's something wrong here, right? And, uh, and the media will follow and then you can just, uh, you can educate. Uh, from there. So uh, I think that protesting is great. Try to find, uh, you know, again, we have the information on our website where protests are being held. If you're near a track and there's not a protest uh, being sponsored there, reach out. We provide all the materials, all the guidance. Um, um, and if we can make it ourselves physically, somebody from Horse Racing Rollins, we will be there. But you could do things like uh, write a letter to the editor. Um, I know it sounds kind of old fashioned, but, uh, it, you know, it still has a great, great impact. And obviously social media, uh, take our posts and share them, share them widely, disseminate the information. Again, we report facts and, uh, we, it's our job to educate and to try to change those hearts and minds. And, and it, it is working and just a real quick thing. And in addition to the contracting industry that we talked about and, and all the metrics are down in horse racing. Uh, when we first started, we were admonished, especially here in the Saratoga region, to to try to work with the industry. You're never going to shut this down. You guys are extremists, and you never it's never going to you're never going to happen. Try to work with it, make it make things better for the horses. Well, since then, in the past ten years, 
the editorial boards at the Washington Post and the Philadelphia Inquirer, two of the most influential newspapers in the country, after extensive conversations with myself, uh, came out with editorials that to, as a, a calling for horse racing to end, not to be reformed, but to end. So clearly that messaging is starting to resonate more and more, and we feel like we're, we're on the right path. Um, but Obviously, there are uh, so many thousands of these poor animals suffering and dying, uh, and we need to uh, accelerate the process. So any way you can help, reach out to us. My contact information is on there. Um, you know, there, We could find something for you to do. We have a writer's group. Uh, if, you, if you like writing, um, Nicole, our executive director, uh, you know, puts them into action when, when we have something that uh, you know, we want to focus on. Uh, so there are many, many different ways that you can help. So I want to, that would be a great place to end, but I want to tell a story from when I was a baby activist. Um, one of the first actions I ever did was I knew that circuses are bad, but I, I didn't know why. I didn't know. I just knew they were bad. And somebody else was having a protest. And so I just showed up and I didn't even bring a sign, didn't bring anything. They handed me a sign. You know, I don't know. Circuses are bad. And I just stood there next to them. And anytime anybody would you know, walking into the circus would say, why are circuses bad? I would just point him to the guy next to me who knew a lot more than I did. And my yeah. point is, even if you just have this gut feeling that horse racing is wrong, but you don't have all the facts and figures you have, you know, you can show up and be one extra body and, and, That's and perfect. You, you will deal with the, the, the details. That's perfect, Derek. That's, 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 I couldn't say, couldn't say better myself. It's, um, Again, you don't have to be an expert. If you if you if you know it that it's wrong, you know, just channel that and uh, and just stand there for the animals. We have to be their voices, right? They can't speak for themselves. We have to do it for them. And and uh, and we have many many activists that that do just that, and will stand there. And and of course, you're going to get you know jerks who will try to um, uh, bait you and uh, provoke you and um, but you know, you just ignore them. Um, and, uh, you know, if you feel confident in some of the, uh, some of the, the facts and, uh, of course you can, you can share that with people, but, um, it, you don't have to be an expert to do it. Just, just to stand there for the animals. And, and that's actually how we, Nicole and I met was at a Ringland protest, you know, years ago. So it's, um, uh, I think it's the best form and it doesn't come, you know, it's not something that was instinctive to me. Um, I'm more, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quieter by nature and more introverted. And, uh, I thought protest, protest, but again, there's, there's, you just feel so empowered by being out there holding a sign or handing out leaflets and, and, and knowing that you're doing something for these poor suffering animals. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for your work in the world. And thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Patrick Batuello. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>